My name is Brian Davis. I'm an elder here at Fellowship, and some of you right now are confused. You're thinking, I just nodded off. I missed an entire sermon, and it's time for announcements. This is sweet. Others of you are like, no, there's no way I fell asleep that fast. We must have just moved announcements up to the beginning of the service. And if you're brand new, you have no idea what I'm talking about. So, again, my name is Brian Davis. I'm one of the elders here, and normally I do handle announcements, and that usually is at the end of the service, but today is your fortunate day to hear my very first sermon that I have ever been able to preach. So, yeah, you're like, oh no, I'm so glad we're here today. I know the feeling. So, just to give you a little bit of background, um, again, I'm an elder, I have a day job. My day job, I'm a certified financial planner. And um, apparently I like dealing with things that are bigger than me, that I have no control over, and things I don't understand, like the stock market, and like God. And I even realized I like the weather, too. So that those all fit together somehow that apparently I like dealing with things that I have absolutely no control over and are hard to understand. My night and my weekend job is to be a husband of 21 years to Aaron. And I have three kids, ages 16, which is unbelievable, all the way down to nine. And my other night and weekend job is to be an elder and a leader in this church that my family has attended for the past 17 years. So because of that, uh, I view it as a very high honor to be here talking to you this morning I don't take it lightly because we have an incredible responsibility behind this pulpit. Uh, Grant has been very faithful for 17 years to preach the word. As we've heard the last two weeks, right, we firmly believe that God's word is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So there's a high standard that Grant and the entire elder board want to present uh, where we're always giving God's word from the pulpit. That is a core value of our church. Another core value of our church is that um, we strive to resemble both an ER, a hospital on one end, and an Olympic training facility on the other end. On the one hand, in the ER, in the hospital, you have people who are hurt, who are sick. That's us. We, we come at times and we're hurt and we're sick. We're beat up by life. Either we've just made a very poor decision and we're suffering the consequences of, or we might be about to make a very poor decision. We just need support and we need encouragement and we need comfort. We need the body to come along beside us and to, to take us by the hand sometimes and to point us in the right direction with Christ. We're hurting and we're in need of love and Christ and godly counsel when we're in the ER. On the other hand, we also as a church want to represent and hold out this Olympic training facility idea where we're taking people who were excited for growth, were primed and ready to take next steps of faith. Um, that can be going on a short-term mission trip, taking a leadership position in the church, in the church maybe teaching a Bible study for the first time. Um, these people at this time see themselves as God's stewards. They are pumped up, ready to go, but they also need someone to come along beside them and encourage them and maybe uh, disciple them, mentor them, help them take their next steps of growth. But it's not always that clear cut. We're not always just in the ER or the training facility. Sometimes we visit both places in the same year multiple times. <laughs> so whichever side you might identify with most this morning, I believe this text that we're going to look at, if you're in the ER, it has your prescription for growth, for, for healing and moving forward. If you're in the training facility, then it's got your workout plan to take next steps as well. And in fact, I will be so bold as to say this. I will guarantee that what we are going to talk about today, these scriptures will impact your tomorrow. Now, it's really funny to me because I'm in the investment world, which is heavily regulated. We don't guarantee that you have air or that the sun will come up tomorrow. So we guarantee zero, but I will guarantee this because it's in God's word. So we're all in different places in our lives, obviously. Some are about to be back in school again. I thought I'd hear a collective groan. So yeah, there we go, a little hissing. So some are about to be back in school again. Some have newborns at home, and you're getting a good nap right now. So I don't want to disturb you in that. Sometimes we're in 
a painful spot in our marriage or a distressing work situation. Sometimes we don't know what the next checkup with the doctor is going to reveal or the next time we check our bank account. And then again, on the other hand, some of us, we're in a phase right now where we're about to launch a new business or we're excited to go back to school. Maybe it's a new school, the higher grade, you transition school, our family might be growing or we're about to lead a ministry for the first time. Uh, in that stage, we are pumped up and ready to go. So the application from these scriptures that we're going to study is universally true and will help us in either place, whether we're at the high or the low. So if you would, open your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And so we're going to read these five verses in full, and then we'll go back and discuss them. So 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Paul starts off, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So, any guesses as to why I might have looked at these and liked these verses for the first time I would preach? Words like weakness, fear, trembling, unwise, not persuasive, not eloquent. I'm like five for five on that. So, But... Then what does he say? He says, instead, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, demonstrating the Spirit's power. I can do that as well. So I come to you today just like Paul described himself to the Corinthians. And just like he surely also did during his time to the Corinthian church, I want to give you a brief testimony of what God has done in my life and how I could even possibly be standing before you today in the fear and trembling and uneloquent and unwise and all that. It was a warm day in 1972. No, I won't go back that far. But yes, I am 45 years old. I know I look 25. I'm 45. So I won't go back that far, though. Growing up, I grew up uh, in Dallas, came to Baylor as a freshman. Before I came to Baylor, I'd been to church one time my entire life. I didn't know anything about God or about church. And years later, looking back on my testimony and what God did, I realized he decided at that point, time to launch a full-scale frontal attack. So... At that time, when you come to Baylor as a freshman, they had what they called Welcome Week, where all the freshmen would get together, and there'd be some upper-class mentors ahead, above you, and they called it Welcome Week because you were welcome for an entire week. Now, they still call it Welcome Week, but it's like two days, so I don't know. Um, anyway, maybe I should help them with their numbers. But back then, Welcome Week was a week, and at night, we had what I'm really looking back call revival, certainly worship and Bible study time, in the Farrell Center, thousands of freshmen, and my year, Louis Giglio was our speaker. So how many of you guys know that name, Louis Giglio? Just curious. Okay, you will not date yourself at all, but anybody that was around in the mid-80s to mid-90s when he was on campus and had a, you know, okay, I'm the only one. Great. So he had a 10-year ministry at Baylor where he taught every Monday night. It was a huge ministry. Uh, literally thousands of students would come to it and hear him, him speak. So as a freshman, I'm hearing what I perceive as Louis yelling and screaming at us about God. I had no idea what he was talking about, and I, I, I literally, I thought he was a freak. That was the exact word that I used talking to some other people in my, in my small group. I said, well, I don't know what I've got myself into. I don't know what I thought going to Baylor would be like, but I hadn't thought about the God part. So as I, as I said, I grew up in Dallas, obviously in the Bible Belt. I would even say, like, you know, Dallas, Waco, that's kind of like the, the buckle, the Bible Belt. I didn't know anybody growing up that was a Christian, or at least I'm sure I did, but I didn't know they were Christians. So either they didn't do a great job of acting like it, or I didn't do a good job of perceiving it and seeing it. Either way, to my knowledge, I knew no Christians. I had two roommates as a freshman, so I was in a three-person dorm room. Both of my roommates were Christians. 
And also as a freshman back then, you had to take a year of Old Testament and a year of New Testament. So the first semester, I take Old Testament. My first night's reading assignment, Genesis 1 through 25. Second night's reading assignment, Genesis 26 through 50. Literally, so this is a Tuesday, 30 class, Tuesday class, Thursday class, entire book of Genesis in the first week. On our, on our class list of materials of what you're supposed to purchase, of course we were supposed to purchase the Bible. I did not. So I had to borrow my roommate's Bible because I had to read it. I had no clue what, we were, what was going on. So that's the first week of class. And also, as freshmen, I guess that we had upperclassmen who were leaders over us. Uh, one of mine, his name was Craig Murray. Some of you will know his name because Craig Murray is now a, a sponsored missionary from Fellowship. He's a missionary up in Dallas doing great work. And so God put him in my life when I was a freshman. So knowing zero about God, zero about his word, coming to faith was a process for me. It wasn't just like, you know, the first, first night I'm on campus, boom, you know, I had instant faith. Oftentimes, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't ask us to have blind faith. He, he does ask us to have reasonable faith. And it's reasonable because it's based on the credibility of his word, the creation that's around us, the conscience that he gives all of us, and then also the changed lives that are around us. And God used all of those elements over about a year to bring me to faith. Did I have all the answers after a year? Absolutely. No, I did not have all the answers, but I did have enough to have a reasonable faith in taking next steps. And so my sophomore year, in the fall of my sophomore year, after one more of those Louis Giglio Bible studies, I, I went back, found one of the leaders, and prayed to accept Christ. My now wife, then girlfriend, Erin, she was a year behind me. She also grew up in Dallas, just a few miles. We've, been, we've known each other since junior high. Um, so she was a year behind me in school. She came with a much different background. She had grown up, her family, they were in church every time the doors were open. They were there all the time. Trouble is, it was a liberal mainline denomination, and she realized that she had never heard the gospel. So she had great church attendance, but still, she was just as lost as I was. So, incidentally, I'll also point out during our Baylor years, some of you know that I like to play trombone. I, why are you laughing? It's not a joke, it's amazing. So I, I play every time they let me here, which is usually Christmas and Easter. Here are our Baylor years, here I am with the love of my life, and Aaron's on the left as well, but my trombone is right there. No. I got permission for that. I know I'm not going to be in trouble. But yes, I, ha I, I had to get trombone in there somehow. So I managed to squeeze, squeeze uh, four years of college into five. I was a marching band all five years. It was great. So fast forward five years. We are married at that point. We're living in Dallas. And we found ourselves in a Bible church. How? I don't know. Actually, I do know. A mentor, a disciple guy, a discipleship guy above me just recommended when you go, you start looking for churches, here's what to look for. And he gave us some key elements, and we ended up at a Bible church. And what do you know? They preached the Bible. Huh. And they expounded on the Bible. Right after that, I have, we heard about this Metro Bible study in Dallas that a guy by the name of Tommy Nelson was teaching. He was, he had just, when we started going, he had just finished going through Song of Solomon, Love, Sex, and Marriage. I don't know why newlyweds would care about love, sex, and marriage, but a lot of them did because that Bible study was huge. And again, he taught the Bible, and we started to have it just open before us. And so after a year or so, we decided, you know what, it's worth making the drive from Plano to Denton Bible, where, where, he, where he preaches, where his church is. And so then for a couple of years, we made that drive every Sunday to Denton Bible to hear him open God's Word. Then we decided in 1999 that we would move to Waco on purpose. Yes, we did. We wanted to move to Waco. Back then, you say now, why wouldn't you want to move to Waco? Well, back then, you might have questioned it. Maybe now you question it. That's not the point. We did move here, and we thought, you know what? Yeah, Denton Bible is a great church, but Waco has more churches than it does gas stations and grocery stores and restaurants combined. It'll be easy to find a great church. 
So 12 months and eight churches later, we did finally stumble on this amazing church right here that was meeting in a movie theater. Yeah, that was us. So if, any, if none of you were around back then, that was us. I can still remember you'd walk out after the service and you're instantly roasting because that's pretty much an oven at that point, And they're hurting us out so they can start the movies. But that was us. That was Fellowship Bible Church in 2000. Grant had just come as our senior pastor and we were meeting in a movie theater. But you know what? I think the very first Sunday we visited, actually, somebody befriended us and said, hey, come to our small group. They picked, they picked up, they came and picked us up and actually took them, uh, took us with them the first time. We got plugged into a small group. And at that point, you know how when you get in a small group and people will say, let's get in a circle and everybody go around and say your name, where you're from, and how long you've been coming here. I had no idea what anybody else was saying because I was so scared to even speak. I'm like, my name's Brian Davis. I come in. It's like, how do you not know? Well, I practice. What speed should I say? What tone should I say? Well, I mean, I was terrified even in a small group to say really anything. So after being in a small group for a while, uh, the leader was going to be out of town one, one week, and he said, hey, will you lead for me this week? After he picked me up, dusted me off, splashed some water on my face, I'm like, okay, sure, I can do that. It was a good experience. Put in a ton of time prepping. It was great. When he came back, I said, man, that was really good. I, I get so much more out of small group now that I know how to prepare ahead of time. And he said, that's great, because I'm about to actually leave. We need to multiply, and you can take, take half the group. <laughs> um, he picked me up again. So... I said, you know what, I can't lead a group, but I can facilitate a small group. Because in my mind, somehow facilitating was just asking questions, but I was not about to lead. I was not prepared or equipped or called to lead. And it's like God said, you can call it whatever you want, but you're going to do it, and I'll give you the strength, and you're going to be just fine as long as you rely on me. So, led a small group for 10 years. Also started getting involved in, in some of our men's groups, men's groups, and these on Wednesday night. I got to lead those a handful of times, do a breakout of the men's retreats. A few years ago for a Christmas Eve service, I was asked, hey, can you open the service and can you pray and then dismiss everybody? And yes, you have to use a microphone. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'll be shaking so bad, I'll probably fall apart in my hands, it'll be terrible. People will never come back for Christmas Eve service again. I did it, I perfectly did it. Even last week was my first time I did announcements last week and I used this little headset mic. I was terrified of that, but it's like God just keeps saying, hey, are you ever going to learn? <laughs> yes, we're asking you to do stuff, steps of growth, do it, I'll provide what you need. So here's a question I have for you. What are you engaged in right now where you do have to rely on God, where you do have to look to him to provide or else it will be a huge failure? What role or what ministry or what life stage are you in? What event are you planning for to where God has to show up for you? If nothing comes to mind, think of it this way. What have you said no to then? What have you been, what have you let fear overrule you and you thought, there's no way I can do that? Uh, no. Maybe that's a question to go back and to revisit. So whether you're in the ER or the Olympic training facility, whether you're at the low end or the high end and you're in a great place, the question is, are you relying on God and God alone for your next steps? So now let's go back, let's look at this text and see what this text has to do with an ER and Olympic training facility. So this letter was written from Paul to Corinth, right? He had founded the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. And shortly after he got there, he found this husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila. They started ministering together. Shortly after that, Silas and Timothy showed up. They had a profitable ministry. They had a good ministry. A number of, a number of people came to faith, including a prominent, the, well, the, the local synagogue leader, Crispus. He came to faith. So Paul ministered there with them for about a year and a half. Before, as was usual for Paul, he was hauled before a Roman tribunal he was um, charged with causing a ruckus and, you know, breaking the peace and all that. And he was said, you need to go away. 
And so a little bit later, they did. He, Priscilla, and Aquila left and then went to Ephesus. After they moved out, a gifted speaker named Apollos came in. And Apollos truly was gifted. Um, he was so much so that, that a large percentage of the congregation really, really enjoyed him. And they started tying, in their minds, their salvation was almost tied to Apollos. And so Paul here is expecting to come see them soon. He wants to address some questions they'd asked him, but he also wants to address a couple things, including some of the activities that are taking place in the church. See, when you hear about Corinth, you need to know that Corinth was essentially Hollywood at the time. It, in fact, to, to Corinthianize became synonymous with drunkenness and idolatry and adultery and fornication and stealing and swindling. And the church even allowed something that the culture around them actually did not even permit, and that was incest. All that was going on in and around the church. And that worldliness even overflowed to how they viewed their church leaders, like we were just talking about, how they viewed themselves in the relationship to their salvation, and again, the conduct that they allowed and participated in. These human allegiances were even dividing the church. If you, if you have verse 1 open in verses, or chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, My brothers... Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Still another, I follow Cephas. And then finally, still another, I follow Christ. Paul once emphasized that they were not saved based on human allegiance or intelligence in the first place. See, God doesn't build his teams like we do. What will we do? We're going to go out and look for the Phi Beta Kappas and the millionaire and the athletes and the politicians. But that's not God, how, how God picks his. In um, chapter 1, verse 25, he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So you don't have to be wise or strong or popular or rich or athletic to follow God. Aren't you glad? <laughs> so why does Paul point this out? Well, in verse 29, he says, So that no one may boast before him, but him who boasts, boast in the Lord. <clears throat> So with that background, let's examine Paul's heart. I think we can do an autopsy on his heart, and we can see how he viewed himself in relation to God, how he viewed the message that he was bringing uh, to these people, this congregation he's ministering to, and then we, in turn, can see how to live a Christ-honoring life. And that's whether we find ourselves in the hospital or on the training facility. I think most of us do want to do that. We do want to, to honor God. If we know him, we're called to do that, to honor and glorify him. And also, we know that's how we're going to find true peace and joy in our lives. So, let's go to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We're going to talk about Paul's priority. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So here we see that Paul consciously decided or resolved that Christ is the highest and only priority worthy to be honored, exalted, and praised and glorified. As we saw in chapter 1, he says that uh, the gospel cannot be obtained through human wisdom. And here he's saying it can't be obtained through human wisdom, and it also cannot and should not be presented through human wisdom. He was not interested in discussing man's ideas or man's insights, even his own or anybody else's. And obviously, if you know that culture of the day, lots of other people were. Lots of philosophers, they loved to, to sit around and discuss philosophy and talk about life and their own insights. That was not Paul's priority here. Do you think, though, that Paul could have done that? Could he, could he have competed on that stage and that level, relying on himself, his, his insights, his wisdom, his training? 
Well, we know he was taught by Gamaliel, a leading Pharisee, who was greatly esteemed, and he taught Paul, and Paul was a young man. Paul received a top education, and he even says in one of his defenses in Acts, he says, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. In Galatians 1, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. In Philippians, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, now he gets to kind of grab his suspenders and brag. He says, if you you have confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. And he goes on from there. So Paul could have relied on his own skills, and he could have been very eloquent and persuasive in the process. But in that verse that I was just reading from Philippians, he says, he shows this is not his priority because he says, I consider all of this achievement loss for the sake of Christ. So that would not have been the effective way to accomplish the life-changing work that Paul was after. Where else do we get a sense of his priority? Um, in Philippians 1, he's actually debating outwardly his own life, thinking about, would I rather go and, and be with God finally, or would I rather stay here on earth and minister to you? And when he's debating this, he says, for t- to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a pretty quick summation of his priority, isn't it? He wanted to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Have you ever wondered how Paul could write, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Those are some hard verses to really understand and figure out. Even Paul says, and so somehow to attain. It's like he doesn't quite know how to put this intense longing and internal desire. He doesn't know how to use the words of his day to to communicate that. But he says he wants to know Christ. He wants to know his fellowship, the depth of his character, uh, his way, his heart, his mission, even his suffering. He wants to grow in Christ. He wants to make progress in his walk and in his development. And he wants to show Christ. He wants to reveal his character. He wants to proclaim his gospel. He wants to embody the character of Christ as he abides in him. So his priority is not in himself. It's definitely in relying on Christ. So another key to honoring Jesus with our lives is found in this next verse. Here we see Paul's perspective. So in verse 3, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. And we'll stop right there for now. So this is the Apostle Paul that's actually saying this. We just talked about his pedigree, his training, his education, um, his likely oratory skills. In Philippians 3, he says, as for zeal, I was persecuting the church. He was a minute man of his day. He was a defender and protector of the law, pharisaical, Jewish tradition. And he didn't just protect it kind of in his own little way, keeping it private to himself. He was essentially a terrorist of the early church. If you never thought of that, he was. He describes himself much that way. In Galatians 1, he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Listen to those words. He says, how intensely I persecuted the church and I tried to destroy it. And now look at where he is at this point in his life when he's writing this letter. I mean, after all, though, back at that time, he was holding the coats, right? For the first martyr, for Stephen. When Stephen was stoned, Paul was there holding the coats. And what does it say in Acts 8? He says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death, to Stephen's death. As Chuck Swindoll wrote in his biography of Paul, he says, he, Paul, he hated the name of Jesus. So much so, he became a self-avowed, violent aggressor. 
persecuting and killing Christians in allegiance to the God of heaven. Shocking though it may seem, we must never forget the pit from which he came. The better we understand the darkness of his past, the more we will understand the gratitude of grace. His gratitude of grace. Paul's. So here's Paul. He's resolving to know nothing other than the same Jesus that years earlier he was a violent aggressor against. And now he is uh, fully, fully willing to give his own life for Christ. So God gave Paul a radically different perspective when he was on that road to Damascus. He was knocked off the ground. He was spoken to by the risen Lord. He was blinded. And he was never the same. But remember, at that time, he was on that journey to Damascus, and it says that he was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples to capture and persecute any followers of the way. So God blinded him. He wiped his eyes clean. He reset him, reoriented him, and he gave him a new perspective at that point. In verse 3, it says, again, I came to you in weakness. I don't think this weakness here is talking about his well-chronicled eye issues or any other physical issues that he might have. He's likely referring to his physical infirmity or the frailty that he feels um, bringing this message of salvation. It's such an important message. It's like it's, he's just trembling at the prospect of bringing it. The power and wisdom of man, even a man like Paul, does not compare to the power and wisdom of the message of God. It is weak by comparison. Likewise, as he says here about fear and trembling, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. I don't think that that refers to his physical fear and trembling either. This type of trembling seems to describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability to completely fulfill his mission and his calling. But yet being true to his call, he's trying his utmost to fulfill his duty. We see that same language in Philippians 2 uh, where Paul instructs believers. He says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He uses that same phrase other times in his writings to refer to deep concern over an important issue, an urgent issue, and the gospel is certainly that. So no, I think that Paul came to Corinth after being beaten and imprisoned. Uh, He was run out of Thessalonica and Berea. He was harassed in Athens. He knew Corinth was a den of iniquity. He knew they would not be clamoring, oh, give us the good news. But I don't think he was weak in the knees or trembling at that prospect. He's trembling at his opportunity praying that somehow the message, the gospel seed, would take root even in a place like Corinth. And again, he knows that's not going to happen in the power and strength and the wisdom of man, even though he was well-equipped. 2 Corinthians 3.5, so another letter to the same church, 2 Corinthians 3.5 says, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. That's a refrigerator verse. Let me read that again. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. So as he's seeking to honor Christ with his life, we've seen Paul's priority, and we've seen his perspective. And now, lastly, we see where he finds his source of power. Yes, those are three Ps. I did not plan it out that way. It's in the text. It's not, I think it must, I, I'm, you know, Grant just thinks in terms of alliteration. I can't even say alliteration, clearly. But I didn't go looking for what are some cool three Ps. It's just there. Maybe maybe when you're on stage, maybe the, the, you know, the pulpit brings it out in you. I don't know. But it's here. So go back to the beginning of verse 4 again. He says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. As I said, I think that Paul's message and his preaching could have been impressive in man's eyes because he was skilled enough, gifted enough, trained enough. He could have done that. But he wanted people to see the work of Christ, not of man. 
Human efforts and theatrics could only go so far. They would rob the gospel of its power or at the very least be distracting. And that is actually a a recurring theme in this book, that we should be more about God's power and his wisdom, not man's. A favorite story that I've heard several times involves Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from England. He was working with a group of preachers one time, young preachers in training, and one in particular was handsome, articulate, and very self-inflated. And when his turn to preach came, he bounced to his feet and bounded up the steps with great energy, wanting the giant Spurgeon to sense his enthusiasm as he entered the pulpit. He was locked, loaded, and ready to go. Well, early in his sermon, however, the gifted novice fumbled his notes. He floundered at regaining his composure, and he actually even failed to finish what he'd begun. So quietly, he stooped down, he recovered his fallen papers, he bowed his head and slipped down off the podium, snuck back to his seat, and even brushing away a tear as he went. Turning to him, Spurgeon said, You know, if you'd gone up the way you came down, you could have come down the way you went up. And that's how it goes if we rely on our strength. If we try to do things in our own power and our own confidence, and it's not God working in us. In the prior chapter, I quoted this before, I'll quote it again. Paul says, uh, chapter 1, verse 25, he says, The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So we want to make sure that we're plugged into the correct power source. And that's what Jesus was referring to when John writes in John 15:5. Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're not abiding in me, if you're not plugged in, if you're not spending time with me, you can do nothing. And we certainly can't do the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Corinthians were mistakenly tying their salvation to man, either to Paul, to Cephas, to Apollos. Paul wanted to correct that and remind them that he, he himself, resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified in order to demonstrate the Spirit's power and that their resulting faith would actually be in God's power. A little side note here. I've read these verses many times. I'd listened to them, wanted to fully internalize them, memorize them. And I just saw a couple days ago, I realized uh, something that I had not seen before. We talk about the veracity of Scripture last couple of weeks, right? That is God-breathed. Um, and that it's not written by man, but it's written, organized. It's in the Bible, God's plan for us to have exactly what we have. One of the things, though, that people say when they question that, they say, I was just written by a bunch of men. You, you all talk about the Trinity, for instance. The Trinity, you don't even find it in the Bible. That might be true. If you go to your concordance and look at Trinity, you're not going to find any verses. However, in these few verses right here, you see all the members of the Trinity present. In verse 2, it says, it says he's talking about Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we see the work of Jesus, the crucifixion, in verse 2. And then later in verse 4 and 5, we're talking about the demonstrations of the Spirit's power, the Holy Spirit working within you. And then lastly, summed up with God's power. So right here in these few verses, you see all three members of the Trinity present. I find that fascinating. So going back here, though, we know that Paul knew that his task was way too big and it was way too important to rely on himself without God's power because he would fail miserably otherwise. So that's why he had God as his priority and his perspective and his source of power. So we can take that same grid, we can use those same characteristics, and then we can apply those in our lives today. So back to the ER and the Olympic training facility. Where are you? Are you in the hospital? Are you afraid of tomorrow? Or are you in the training facility? Are you pumped up? Are you ready to go? Thinking about your next stage of life. Either way, you better be dependent on God, just like Paul was here. Otherwise, you will fail. 
I'll also suggest that you understand and feel the same urgency that drove Paul. Paul was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He never knew which day might be his last day, and he lived like it. So why don't we create some urgency and understand the importance of making the most of our time? As I said, I'm a financial planner. I deal with numbers. I deal with money all day long. So it helps me to kind of quantify some things. So let me give you this illustration. Imagine every day you have a bank account. It's credited with $1,440. And every night, the money that you don't spend that day is taken away from you. It's gone. It's wiped away. What would you do? You're given $1,440 every day. If you don't spend it, it's gone. What would you do? You'd spend it, right? Well, we do have such a bank account. We have a bank account just like that. It's called time. Every day, we're given 1,440 minutes. My daughter, when I was talking about this illustration, she said, why, why are you using 1,440? Why don't you round that to like 1,500? She didn't know, she, we hadn't gotten to the minutes part yet. She knows how to do math. But, but that's, the point. I mean, that's the whole point, though. It might seem like a small, odd number. Those are the number of minutes that we have in a day, though. And at the end of each 24-hour period, whatever we don't use, whatever we don't use wisely... It's gone. You don't get to redo. You don't get today's minutes, get to redo them tomorrow. You don't get to borrow forward or borrow from tomorrow back today. You don't get to work necessarily twice as hard tomorrow to make up for squandered minutes today. But I like the illustration of the minutes because 14 or dollars, because $1,440, it might not sound like a lot of money. In and of itself, in the grand scheme of life, it's really not. Now, if somebody walked up right now and said, hey, I'll give you $1,440 just to close in prayer and be done, I'd take it. $1,440 is a nice number to take. But when you're looking over your life, let me just tell you, I don't even need to run a financial plan to tell you this. If you're thinking that $1,440 is going to make or break your retirement, it's not. It can be deceptive. But over time, those little increments do add up. So one day is 1,440 minutes. One month is 43200 one year is over 500000 So now let's go back to dollar terms. If you were suddenly missing $500,000, would you notice it? I'm pretty sure you would. I know I would. If you wasted $500,000, you would notice it. But how many of us, if we're honest, we look back and we've, in a, in a sense, wasted a year of our time, or more or less, but we look back and we think, you know what? I squandered some of that. You can't get it back. So the moral of the story is each one of us should always do the best with our time that we have been given. Let's see what the Bible has to say. We've got a few verses on this as well. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I love that verse. God teaches us. What do we do? We learn. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We need to learn and gain that heart of wisdom. Ephesians 5 says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That's a pretty sobering warning, isn't it? Be very careful how you live because we do want to become wise. We want to learn and be wise with our time. And lastly, Psalm 39. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. God's not going to tell you your number of days. He's not going to do that 1440 times a certain amount. You're not going to know the exact number of your days. But that because of that, that's why we're told it is fleeting. We need to recognize we don't know the number, but it's fleeting regardless. And I had a, in my mind what, what I thought fleeting meant, but I wanted to look it up and find some other synonyms to make sure that I really had a true picture of what that's saying. So fleeting, it can mean meteoric, momentary, passing, short-lived, sudden. Or Ecclesiastes calls our life a vapor. You get the picture? It is quick. So those are sobering verses. 
To me, that tells us that our decisions count. Our time management counts. The yeses that we say are important. The noes that we say are important. We need to make the most of our time. These verses fire me up because we only live once. And I want to live in a way that is honoring to God. One, I'm called to do that. And two, I know that's the only way I will find true joy and happiness and peace. So those verses help me to focus my priority, my perspective, and my power on God. But can I offer you a word of advice? As a type A perfectionist personality, you can go to extremes taking these verses. You can go to extremes with that, and you can find that over time, you've got the wrong priorities, you've got the wrong perspective, and you're plugged into the wrong power source. So you've got to keep things well balanced. Uh, We have to keep Christ at the center of whatever we're doing, and we will be well on our way to a life well lived. Rest and refreshment are actually just as important as investment, work, and ministry. So there's a balance in there. I want to make sure that I don't send you guys on the wrong direction with that. So in closing, I want you guys to know that I didn't come up with these insights and study this passage just so I could try to bring a message to you today. This, this message, these ideas were actually two weeks and a year in the making. Because last summer, a year ago or so, I'd get up in the morning, I'd have my coffee, I'd open my Bible, and I was kind of aimless. I didn't really sense that I had a real priority or a perspective, and I desperately needed God's power. So let me give you an idea. If you, if you realize I'm anxious about something or um, whatever word is bothering you, I lack humility or I'm fearful, Google Go to your concordance and look up those words. Look up words like anxiety, anxiousness, and see what does Scripture say. God made you. He knows what you need. So don't just sit and stew and dwell on it. But like I did in quiet times, read the Scriptures. Let God speak to you through that. And so it was over a period of time searching the Scriptures for greater purpose and strength for me to try to make it through another day well and to walk with Him and honor Him well that I feel like God gave me this framework of seeking and exhibiting His priority, perspective, and power in my life. So how about you guys? Think about how this might already be happening in your life. Ask God to give you insight to the keys for living a Christ-honoring life. What might the next month look like? Don't worry right now about your five-month plan, five-year plan or your five-month. Think about the next month, just the next few weeks. What might it look like if you adopted some of these keys? Some of us are getting ready to go back to school as students or as teachers. Fall schedules are being set. It's kind of a time almost of turning over a new leaf. We have new challenges that await. If you're in the hospital and you're hurting and you're working through a major challenge, then how do these passages, how do they give you insight to what God wants you to do? And again, if you're chomping at the bit, you're on the, the top of the mountain, you're in the training center ready to go, you've got an opportunity, an exciting opportunity before you. How does this passage give you insight on how to handle that well? For all of us, what can we be engaged in right now where you're utterly and totally dependent on God? As I said earlier, where if he does not provide, you will be overcome with a wave just like that. What role, what ministry, what life stage, what event are you planning for? Or what thing did you say no to that maybe you need to go back and reexamine to see where God has to provide for you? So like Paul, let's focus on his priority, his perspective, and his power. And let's pray. God, I pray that later today or tomorrow morning that you would show us what it looks like to have 
your priority, your perspective, and you as our source of power. Some of us will wake up tomorrow morning and we won't be feeling it. We'll be nervous. We'll be down. We'll be depressed. There'll be another Monday of a week that feels like a week of Mondays. And others will wake up really excited and well. Either way, help us not to rely on ourselves, but to look to you for guidance and wisdom and perspective and power. Please give us the desire to do this day in and day out. And God, if there's someone here who's still trusting man, either just in themselves or in some other worldly religion, show them what your word says about a relationship with you. Would you grab their heart today so they would never be the same again? And those of us that already know you, may we honor you through our lives this upcoming week, whether it's school, whether it's work, whether it's in the home, with our families, with our neighbors, just in our quiet time with you. Would you help us to make the most of the time that you've given us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.